you kind of have to get creative until you're certified in a way that a large company requires. But generally speaking, it's very, very tough. It may not be possible to pass that gate if you don't have that certification and that's a requirement for that company. And so you, you may continue to try to hit up against the large company wall while amassing smaller customers behind you. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Hey folks, today I have Arthur Corin. He's a co-founder at Assembly. Welcome to the show. Hi Phil, nice to be here. So could you please tell us a little bit about your background story, like what you were doing before you started this company? Sure. So my long-term background is uh, across a few different areas. I was in IT management and management consulting in product and even dabble a little bit in finance. My last job before Assembly was I was a senior manager at Ernest & Young. So we were acquired as a management consulting company where we did both product and process for execution of very large programs and projects for Fortune 2000 companies. We did things like strategic alignment of work portfolios or project portfolios for companies. We did work management and resource management engagements. So really anything that touched on large company operations and setting up the technology, people and process to execute on those operations is what I did. And how do you go from managed consulting and working with big companies to a co-founder and a chief product officer at Assembly? I think I was always a startup-oriented person or a startup thinking person. I had a short stint with a startup that I was also a co-founder for called Nusana, where we try to use AI to automatically detect cancer and biopsies. That startup was a little bit ahead of its time. It was around 2010. And so I've always been drawn to innovation, fast progress. And even in those projects with large companies, when you're a management consultant, it's kind of like being in a startup for every project you're in, ironically enough. So every project in my area, these projects could be several months long, but they can also last a year, two years, etc. These could be very long engagements. And each one of these is a startup because you have to figure out the world you're in. Each big company is its own huge world. You have to understand what are the value points that your solution must bring to the users. And you have to innovate on the spot. You have to figure things out as far as both what kind of tool sets and how they factor into the architecture of that enterprise, what kind of skill sets and people the company has to engage with that tool set, and then how do you mesh all the processes together to get to a result that you want, which could be anything from maximizing the effectiveness of your operational investment to efficiently ushering resources across your organization to many, many other kind of points of value. Makes total sense. So you kind of feel like you're at home because you have been doing this kind of like even management consulting for other firms, different projects, always learning about new things. And what problem does Assembly solve? Assembly solves 
the problem of how do you get value from the meetings you've had. So I'll put it in that very succinct way. Now, there's a lot of elements to assembly, and maybe it makes sense for us to talk a little bit about what assembly is and introduce the audience to it. The product that my company has introduced, and we've been around since 2019, co-founded with Gil McLeff, our CEO, is uh, assembly, which is a team meeting assistant. We like to think of it as an AI teammate. And this is a product that joins your meetings whether it's Google Meet, Microsoft Teams, Zoom, it becomes a participant in your meeting. So you invite it just like you would any other person to a meeting. It shows up and it listens to the conversation. It introduces itself. It can also relay a little message, but generally what its purpose is to hang out while you're having the meeting and listen. There's no special buttons or commands to use. You just have your meeting as usual, normal conversation. After the meeting, Assembly will transcribe this meeting. And by the way, the meeting could be in English or it could be in another language. Today, we support over 20 languages and they can be mixed. So in a single meeting, you can speak some German and some English and assembly will understand that very well. And so after the meeting, it will have a full transcript. It will also have meeting notes that are very impressive, very intelligent, and give you a really good idea of all the key agenda items that were discussed in that meeting. It also generates key items. So things like issues, risks, decisions, and many more. And it also understands tasks in the meeting, which is huge. So, and that's really our big focus area. At Assembly, we're very focused on what is the work that needs to be done now that the meeting has been had. So there's many reasons to have a meeting, to share information, to clarify some points. But one of important components of a meeting is you're talking about the work that needs to happen next. And this is where assembly is very focused. And so we can identify different kinds of tasks very robustly. We know who assigned it, who's assigned to, what the due date is, and a whole bunch of other information. And these tasks can flow directly into your apps. So we have a feature called AI to-dos that can automatically populate your to-do app Microsoft to do Google tasks with to do items that came up in your general conversation during your meeting. So very often I'll show up on Monday and I'm like, okay, what are all the things that I was supposed to get done as of last week? I could just look at my to-do list that's automatically populated by the assembly AI. Those are some of the key insights that we generate from meetings. And then also we have a feature called Semblian. And Semblian is a far, a very well received by our customers today. It's probably the favorite feature, let's say, of many of our customers. And Semblian is very similar to ChatGPT for your meetings. And as you can imagine, you can ask any question about a meeting you had, but you can also ask it to create a next step item for you. So like you can say, okay, draft me a follow-up email or suggest the agenda for the next meeting based on what was discussed. Or you can even do something fun like retell the meeting in in a Shakespeare poem, and it will do that as well. So very, very flexible, very useful, and saves a lot of time. Now, there's individual use, there's team use, and organization use. Just one last bit I'll add, which is that by having assembly across meetings of the team, what you're doing is you're building a meeting cloud in your organization. So you're automatically getting transcripts, meeting notes, 
going into your wiki, going into your search space. This is obviously all searchable. So you're building a library of meeting notes and a library of meeting activity in your organization automatically just by virtue of having those meetings. That's amazing. Actually, I have been looking for a product to do just that. So I might give you guys a try. So I have a question for you. What's under the hood? Because you guys were building this before OpenAI becomes super popular. So it's kind of like you were doing AI before AI was the super cool thing to do. So what's under the hood? How you guys are building out this AI engine? We always thought AI was the super cool thing to do. <laughs> I think the rest of the world is just catching on, but that's good. Yes, you're absolutely right. So we compared to 2010 when I did my prior startup, when we started in 2019, things were actually very advanced. And so comparatively, we were already a lot of ways up in terms of the kinds of things you can do with AI. But of course, the last few years, mostly in the last year, it's really shifted gears a lot with the introduction of modern large language models. And so the capabilities of AI are so much more robust and so much more powerful now, especially in our space, which is natural language understanding and conversational intelligence. We have a big mix of things. So there's more than a couple dozen proprietary models that we have under the hood, but we also use some large language models that are pre-trained. And it's all really about the orchestration and application of all these models in a way that you can generate very specific results that are industry-grade. Because when you're talking to ChatGPT just from your couch, okay, you'll ask it some things, it'll say some things, okay, you might be happy with the answer or not. But when it's at a work setting, when it's in a, especially in a large company, it could be a big international firm, tens of thousands of people, the product has to work very accurately. It has to generate results repeatedly. It has to account for different kinds of languages used, different kinds of accents that may be used, different ways of saying things, different work culture aspects that go into it. There's a myriad of things you have to account for, and of course, privacy, and of course, security. And so bringing all that together in a product that works very, very well repeatedly is a big challenge. And that's something that we've been able to do by putting all these elements together to create that effect. How long does it take to create one of those custom models and how much does it cost? Great question. So it really depends. There are some models that you can get together in a matter of days and there are some models that will take weeks. And the cost obviously varies as well. And so for heavy audio models, you need a lot, a lot of GPUs and a lot of training. It costs thousands of dollars to train up a speech engine. So we have a proprietary speech engine for English that we've been training over the past few years. And yeah, that's an expensive exercise. And so we don't do that very often. But then there's other models where it's a lighter data set. These models are more kind of pinpoint as far as what specific thing they're trying to understand or detect or categorize. And so for those models, the training is the training aspect of them is less expensive. The more expensive thing is figuring out exactly how to architect it, what kind of a data set do you need for it, and then managing the data set with the model architecture. And then the training piece is actually a small part of the equation. So it really depends on the nature of the model where the expense lies. Makes total sense. And so you talk about how important it is in the B2B space, dealing with business of a product that actually have an output that's usable. How long did it take for you guys to get there? 
how long did it take where you're like, okay, now I have a product that's usable, that people are getting an amazing output from. So how was like launch to MVP and beyond? Could you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. So that was a journey. I would say our, the first sprouts of an end-to-end usable product that we can really put it in individuals' hands without a lot of handhold and have it be usable and productive. Probably early last year, maybe like towards end of 21, something like that. That was the first version that... About three years. I would say two, two to three years like that. And the reason for that was that we are a larger environment-oriented product. We have great individual users, we have teams, but what's really cool about Assembly is that we support large organizations really well. For example, our product doesn't require any kind of browser add-ons or any kind of local binary installs. It works completely SaaS and to it. So, you know, in other products, like it might require you to record from your browser. Well, if you're an enterprise, there's going to be controls on what you can put in your browser. Or it might require you to do some other like settings and approvals and things like that. Our product is structured in a way that it works very turnkey. And by the way, that also allows it to attend even without you. So you can send assembly to a meeting that you're not on. And it will come back to you with the meeting notes from that meeting. But we originally started focused on larger companies and the enterprise. And the interface was, one of our users said it was like being dropped into a Boeing cockpit where there's just all these bells and whistles and buttons, and you're not really sure what to do. So we had all of the enterprisey things built in, like security, tracking, traceability, access groups, all these kinds of things to make it fit in the enterprise environment, which it did. But then when it came to the individual experience, it was lacking. And so we did a big pivot, middle of 21, where we completely redesigned our user experience. And with this new user experience, it was very simplified, very streamlined, made it very obvious and intuitive. And once we went that route, we started to see uh, traction begin. Makes total sense. So, and how did you guys fund it? We're founded by individual investors originally. So the first investor in the company was my co-founder, Gil. It was his brainchild and it was his energy, both personal and financial, that kicked it off the ground. But it was actually an interesting story because we set up a certain amount. We said, okay, this is enough to get us to an MVP, and then we'll look at the next step in funding. Once we started working on Assembly, people who heard about it were like, oh, this is a great idea. We want to invest. And so we actually had an impromptu investment round just based on the word on the street, effectively. And so we had more capital raised that way, got us to a further MVP. And most recently, we have a strategic partner and investor, a company called MIGSO, P-Cubed, which is part of the Alton Group. And so they're uh, an investor in the company as well. They're a major management consulting and, and project and program and PMO management firm, very strong presence in Europe, but also presence in US. And so they're the most recent sizable investor for our company. We actually don't have a VC in our cap table so far. Makes total sense. Is it public how much money you guys raised so far or not? I don't know that the exact number is public. I could tell you that I'm just thinking like what's been publicly released. 
you can probably see that we've total raised north of three and a half million, but the exact amount, I don't know if it's public or not. Makes total sense. And I think that's the last one too for people listening to this show, because used to be years ago that everyone would come to us. I run a consulting firm that builds SaaS products and they'll be like, I want to build the Uber of X. I want to build the Uber of Y. And now everyone come to us and they're like, I want to build AI for X, AI for Y, because it's the newest, hot, hottest thing. And the thing that people have to realize is that building AI products is complex. It takes time and it's expensive. If you wanted to add AI features that you can leverage, uh, like simple APIs that are out there, like you can use OpenAI API and you can use some of those APIs, that would be a little bit easier. It's going to cost a bunch of money because their products are not cheap. But like when you want to build your own product and have bring all these technologies together, it's definitely a long-term effort. That's going to cost a bunch of money. That's worth it if you can get it the other side, but it's not an easy route. For sure. Agree with that. And how did you guys find your first customers? So our first individual customers found us, I would say. We had some very early adopters who were just curious about the tool and the product and started to use. Some of the others, it was both based on relationship as well as the marketing and promotion that we did. We actually are partnered with Philips. So Philips produces a family of conference tools like conference microphones also some individual recording devices. And so there's this product line called Smart Meeting and it's co-branded with Assembly. And so they found out about us because we were part of the Google Voice AI cohort. And then through that relationship, we also have, you know, they're a user of Assembly. We've had a lot of other accounts through them as well. So it's really, I would say it's very highly multi-channel, the, how these early things happen. It's kind of very random and where people find out about you. I can't say there's like one thing I can point to. Certainly for the very first users, they were relationship-based. These were companies that we knew, we knew people in. We connected with those people, said, hey, we have this amazing new tool. Do you want to try it? And some of them said yes. And from the beginning, it looks like you guys were targeting bigger organizations, right? So you're not going after the, this, the mice that we say. You're going after the whales. And so what are the lessons that you learn going after those big organizations and trying to bring them in? What is different and tell me more, a little bit, the decision and how the process has been. One of the very important lessons that we've learned through this process is that you can't ignore the individual user and the individual user experience when you're working into the enterprise environment. And so you have to provide a very compelling individual use case and individual use end-to-end because even though your customer is enterprise, the users are individual. And if they don't have a great experience using your product, if they're not getting value, if it's not easy to use, you're not going to succeed. So in a way, it's not you're going individual or you're going big. It's more of a pyramid. The base level of the pyramid is individual in any case, and you have to have a great individual experience. And then as you approach larger companies, now you have to have more stuff. And so that more stuff comes in a few different flavors. One side of that equation is your security infrastructure certification. So you have, you really have to have either ISO 27001 or SOC 2 certification under your belt in order to talk to most larger companies. And that certification affirms a lot of different aspects of your operation, including security, privacy, HR controls, like all sorts of kinds of things to make sure that your 
healthy as an organization to a work with as a service provider or a product provider to a larger company. So that's one part of the equation. Another part of the equation is you have to have security and privacy actually built into aspects of your product. So it has to be very aware of that. And there have to be a lot of good controls and toggles in the application itself to support the different access and security requirements that these larger companies have. The next thing is geography. So when you're talking large companies, it's necessarily multinational these days. Not 100%, but okay, let's say not necessarily, but very often it's going to be multinational. Multinational means, first of all, they may have geographic infrastructure requirements, but they also might have language requirements. Like we have teams who speak English, but we also have teams who speak Japanese. And does your product handle both scenarios? So those are some of the things you start running into. Billing is another thing with larger companies. They're not necessarily happy to just put in a credit card and let you charge. So there's like custom invoicing. And when you get into really big accounts, there's different invoicing centers with different tax treatments, depending on the geography they're in. So you get into all of these new levels of complexity with larger accounts that you would never even think about with smaller teams and individuals. There's so much to unpack in this answer (laughs) because like, is it true? Like when you, if you're going big, it's amazing. Like the knowledge that you guys got, you still have to make sure the individual user it's there. Uh, The SOC 2 compliance, that's so important or the other kind of compliance the custom invoicing. So it's definitely another animal. So now the SOC 2 take a bunch of time for you to get the license. What did you do until you have the license? How you still, or you were going after smaller customers until you had SOC 2. And then as you had more of more of the infrastructure behind you and more and more after bigger customers. So what was your strategy there? Yeah, it was really hard. (laughs) 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 Because basically... People are willing to talk to you and they're willing to kind of consider and they'll ask a whole lot of different questions on architecture, security, privacy, all that. But usually at the end of that set of questions is, and by the way, are you SOC 2 certified? Like if the question started there, probably would have saved a lot of time. So very, very difficult to make inroads without that certification. The way we would proceed is we would say, okay, like we're in progress, which we were at the time. We spent some time preparing for SOC 2, then we spent some time executing on the actual SOC 2 certification. It's a big whoop. It touches every element of your company. But while we're doing that, we would say, okay, like let's do a pilot that's limited to internal data, internal users, internal meetings that has like a limited risk profile and try to go that way. So you kind of have to get creative until you're certified in a way that a large company requires. But Generally speaking, it's very, very tough. It may not be possible to pass that gate if you don't have that certification and that's a requirement for that company. And so you you may continue to try to hit up against the large company wall while amassing smaller customers behind you. It's kind of like that. It makes total sense. So I guess the, the lesson here it is if you're going to go enterprise, you need to have all your ducks in the rows with like the certifications and everything. And I have the my own experience. I'm still working on SOC 2, my own SaaS product. And the worst thing is the buyer many times doesn't even know about it. So he's like, great, let's go. And then procurement come in. They're like, yeah, you can buy this product. <laughs> you know, so like everyone is excited. Like, yeah, I like, kill it in the demo. They love the product. But as you say, it would be great if the conversation is start there. 
but many times it doesn't start. So it's a bigger waste of time for everyone involved when you don't have the certification and trying to go after big organizations. Yeah, I would say like large companies in a sense kind of are in their own world. They are, they have their own different weird and unusual requirements, but they're so much in that world that to them, like a SOC 2 certification is like a normal, like it's just part of doing business. And for smaller companies, that's a rude awakening. For sure. And what's the first oh shit moment that come to mind from the early days of your SaaS? So many oh shit moments. So many oh shit moments. One oh shit moment happened early, probably in our first year. You know, our product is very much based on the ability to transcribe at a high quality and also understand who said what, which is called diarization. And we quickly found out that the popular transcribers in the market, uh, I'm not going to name names, but some very, very large companies at the time didn't actually do a good enough job of transcription. Their transcription was just not so great in just in terms of the word error rate. Not only that, but at the time, many didn't even offer diarization So they'll show you the text, but they won't tell you that these different people said the text. And then to complicate matters further, Oh, and I should also mention it's very expensive, like to transcribe at the time. And to complicate matters further, the quality of service, like how quickly you get results back, could vary a great deal. You know, sometimes you can get results in like a few minutes, but sometimes it could take an hour just because the SaaS processor or whatever decided that they're going to delay processing your audio. And so because this was a piece that's so fundamental to our product, we were actually in an oh shit situation because we were like, okay, like if we can't get a really good transcript out of this, we can't do anything with it. We can't apply AI to it. We can't do anything, let alone show it. So we actually had, we actually turned to develop our own engine that would fit our performance and quality criteria for English that we can actually go to market with. That was a big oh shit moment. Yeah, so that was a lot of work. We got there. You know, we've developed an engine that's, you know, really second to none in in the English language. But now our product has expanded beyond English. And so we are open with like other third parties that do transcription. But at the time, we had something that we had a level of transcription and diarization, that no one else could provide. So that was a one ocean moment. Another ocean moment I think I described, which was kind of our realization that our product is too complex for the individual user. And it's not really clicking at that level, even though organizations are really happy to have it. Once it touches the user, they're very, it's just complicated to use. That was the next big OSHIP moment. That was a big pivot. So that's really the birth of current user experience of assembly. That's amazing. I like the two OSHIP moments that you brought because they brought up the biggest two risks that you have when you're building a product. First, the technology risk. You thought, I I can use this API. They're going to be great. And then you use it and they're not good. And now you have to do something about it. And you guys decide to go build your own. But there was still a huge risk there because what if you could not build something better than it was in the market? So you guys have a huge technology risk to overcome. And it's amazing that you guys were able to do. The second risk, it is the market risk. Do people want this? Do people buy this the way that I package? And then you guys have to kind of like package a little bit different pivot so people would want. And those are the two biggest risks of building any SaaS product, technology and market. But I would say though, nowadays, if you are outside of AI, most products that have not so much technology risk, more of a market risk. But you guys like kind of like tackle on both of those risks hard. And I'm glad to hear that you were able to win in both ways. 
yeah, it was not not so easy. I would say, I think, so I'll, I'll add this, this piece here, which is interesting. So there is certainly, technology has come a long way, especially in the field of AI and also in the field of transcription. Certainly, we're in a different world today than we were, you know, when we started in 2019. That said, when you start to use a lot of this tech, even name brand offerings from some very big companies, even GPT from OpenAI, what you'll find is that you things that you think you wouldn't expect, like for example, peak loads, you might get timeouts. If this is something that powers your core product, you have to figure out how to deal with that. Also, Whisper came out last year, which is like this big open transcription engine. Whisper does a lot of funny things. Like it will sometimes decide to give you a wrong language in your transcription. It might sometimes decide to omit punctuation. It might sometimes decide to start repeating a sentence over and over again for the duration of the transcription audio. So yes, the technology has improved. The risk is probably lower. But it's still a a major consideration when building an application that's used in the business. Maybe on an individual level, you can kind of get away with it if it's like a personal app. But in in a business app, there's a lot of areas where you need to be very careful and have some very clever solutions to make it really work. That's what I found with every new technology. There's always a lot of hype. But when you go to use it, it's not there yet. Because like every demo that you see is the best case scenarios, right? And then you're going and you like, there's the edge cases that that's not ready for yet. And that, as the years go on, the technology gets better. Like you say, it's a lot better today than it was when you start, but there's still risk and it's going to be a lot better five years from now. But there's always those edge cases that the hype that you see in the internet doesn't cover, <laughs> you know? And so what do you do about that when you're actually trying to build a real product? That's something that people have to think about it with new technology. Absolutely. Oh my God. Hype. There should be just like a thing about if I could write a book quickly, like tonight, I would write it probably about hype because we have to deal with, there's a lot of companies that are good at hype. That's a good thing to be good at. Like I kind of wish we would be a little better at hype because we lead with technology and product assembly, but we don't hype so much. And to hype a bit is not a bad thing, but we are struggling, for example, with this. So for example, Microsoft Teams Premium created huge announcement earlier this year about AI and their team's product. And it was exciting, but also a little concerning for us because we needed to understand, you know, is there overlap? What is the difference? Like, is it going to replace Assembly for Microsoft Teams? And oh, good news, like Assembly kicks butt and very, very, still really good and really relevant. It does a million things that the premium offering doesn't provide. But what it turned out is that the marketing material was many, many months ahead of the actual landing of that product. And so to my knowledge, those AI features still haven't landed. But when we talk to customers, we get like, but we just saw this video from Microsoft that says all these things are there. Then it becomes you know, a problem that we need to solve, even though it, today it's more of a hype thing. Tomorrow we'll see what happens, but today it's more of a promise. That's a great insight. So many times marketing lead with what they hope the product's going to be, not what the product really is. And I like also to think we have internet for many years now. We have to start to understand how internet works. Like things in the internet many times, like like you said, people, they're very good at hype. 
Every year they're going to write an article about so-and-so is like technology X is that your job is gone. It's like you have to be so hype it so people are going to click it. This is so good. But you have to look at everything with a grain of salt because that's how the internet works. Everything is clickbait. Everything is, is a little bit more overhyped than really is in, in real life. And so there's some work they have to do to sort through what's reality and what's some marketing person over-optimist about things <laughs> and try doing their job. Their job is to get a bunch of clicks, you know? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Like I said, I respect the game. Like, I think it's, you know, it's important, but it creates, you know, new levels of betting that companies need to do, users need to do. And with the latest AI, I don't know if it's going to get any better because AI understands what gets attention and hype does. And I think we're in for it. Yeah, for sure. So could you share like a, a very smart decision that you guys made in the early days? Interesting question. Well, okay. There's many. I mean, I think you have to, most of your decisions have to be smart when you're early because I actually like to think of startups, I mean, business in general, but I think startups in particular, it's a little bit like playing chess. So I have a, actually a chess set right next here. I'm, I'm a fan. And the moves you make, you can make like a slightly wrong move and that's okay. You're not going to lose the game. But to a strong enough opponent, you two slight wrongs are going to lose you the game. And one really bad move might lose you a game. So startups are similar. Like you might be able to make a couple of slight missteps, and that's fine as long as you can recover quickly. But a big misstep, like something really silly, could cost you the business because it's so fragile. It's like a baby. And so you have to make a lot of smart moves when you're starting a company. And so like one of good moves that I think we made is we kicked off our team in Ukraine. I happened to be fluent in Russian. I happened to know, I happened to have spent a little bit of time in Ukraine, like a few months during my travels. And I was pretty familiar with Odessa, Ukraine. And so when we kicked off the team, the first people we hired were in Odessa, Ukraine. And that was a good move. It turned out to be a good move for a few reasons. One, the team, the technologists in Ukraine are very hungry for creating awesome things. There's not so many opportunities to participate in really cool projects as there are maybe in Europe and US. I'm not saying there aren't in Ukraine, there are, not as many. And so to get involved in a really cool project is a treat and the team is very motivated. Two, there's a big cost factor. It's less of a factor today. But when we started, it was a big cost differential between hiring developers in Ukraine versus hiring developers in US. And then finally, the fact that we were locally based in Ukraine, we weren't outsourcing to Ukraine. I moved to Ukraine and I was with the team every day, handholding them every single day. That eliminates all the middlemen as far as like recruiters or organizers or managers. And so one it keeps your costs controlled. But two, it gives you a really direct lever on the quality that you're putting out. And it also lets you raise the team and raise the team culture in a way that you need, which is a seed that you're planting into the future. And so a lot of the people who are with us in the first year are still with the company today. And I think having it be in Ukraine was a big, big deal. The other thing I'll mention about Ukraine is a lot of people there are also English speakers, also very strong technologists, both because I think it's like a cultural thing, but also through their universities. 
And so that initial team set the vector for our technical abilities and technical capabilities in the product going forward. And that was one very good move that I think helped us to maximize our investment, to get so, so much more with those dollars that would have been possible in most other places. That makes total sense. And I like how invested you were. Like, I'll move there. I'll help the team. I'll be closer to the team to develop this team. And I'm a big fan of that strategy because you make your dollar go further, but you bring people up, people that don't have a lot of opportunities. I have done the same with Brazil on my own business. I'm, I'm originally from Brazil. I speak Portuguese. But it's definitely a strategy that I feel like more companies should be using. Now, but when we talk about Ukraine, I have worked with very, very talented people from Ukraine. You're right, they're amazing. But how did you guys navigate this whole war going on and, and this whole thing coming in these years? Did you end up like having to shut down office for a couple of months? So how was that? I would like to see a startup that has the luxury to shut down its office for a couple of months. Look, it's a catastrophe. It's a crisis. It's a war. It's a real war. Not something anyone expected. I can tell you, Almost no one in Ukraine thought this is possible for it to happen, what's happening today. But a couple of things. One, the prior year we had COVID. And in a funny way, I think COVID inoculated our organization in the sense that it made us be a very effective remote first organization. So everyone was already working remotely and we had a high velocity of development with that setup. And so we, didn't, we weren't tied to an office anymore. And that was due to COVID. So when the war came, we already could be a very flexible, we were very flexible to where people are working from. We didn't need anyone to be in a particular location. So that already helped. When the war just broke out, the first couple of weeks were managing, like basically managing disaster. So we were busy with coordinating, relocating people from war zones getting people out of the country, getting people into safe places, getting people into places that had power and water and things like that and heat. So those were a couple of weeks. These were straight catastrophe triage weeks. We didn't stop working on those weeks. It wasn't like no work, but significant percent of our workforce was impacted and they were in moves. After those couple of weeks, it was back in the saddle. And that was very important because no matter what's happening outside, as a company, our work needs to be done that actually benefits the people as well. Because rather than focusing on what's going on out there, they can focus on their milestones. They can focus on their team goals. They can interact with the team. They can keep working. And that actually helps to keep people I think a little bit more emotionally stable and a little bit more kind of calm, let's say. And so we were very, very operational when the war broke out. There was no stopping. We coordinated what we need to coordinate and then we just kept moving forward. Thanks for sharing that. I'm sure it was super hard, but I agree with you. Like when crisis hit, you control the things you can control and then you keep working. That does help you go to crisis. I've never been in a crisis that big like you guys been through. But for sure, that applies even for any kind of crisis. You have to keep working, you have to keep moving, and that's going to help you go through the situation. Yep, exactly. And how about a bad decision, like a blunder, if we're going to stick with chess terms, that you made in the early days? When we sacked the queen. <laughs> Let's see. 
I mean, there were some hiring decisions that were blunders, I would say. Let's see, you know, let's see if I can talk about it in an interesting way. So there's different kinds of AI and different kinds of machine learning. And when we started at first, this was still a very much developing field. And what the structure of the space was is not very clear. And exactly what kind of qualities you need in an AI developer weren't very clear. So it actually took us a while to calibrate our machine learning team, what we now call our NLP team, the natural language processing team, to calibrate that team to a very effective composition. And it's not just the people, it's also the process around the people because building AI-enabled features is different than building classical features. It's yet different today with large language models because now you know prompting is important. Da, da, da. But before this, data sets were important. And so whereas before you can kind of, I used to say like this, I used to say the software development is engineering where you have an architecture, you have a roadmap, you have a plan, and then you execute in the plan. But it's very possible to create a, a high confidence plan and execute on it. Whereas machine learning was more science than engineering in a sense that it was hypothesis testing, hypothesis testing, hypothesis testing, and then you get to a result that makes sense. And that cycle is much less predictable in terms of qualities and in terms of timeline than traditional software engineering. And so we made some blunders in our hires when we first started because we were looking for people who can kind of tackle that complexity of ML development, machine learning development, to get to a level of result that would be user acceptable. And it took us a few iterations of the team to get to that level. That's one blunder. Put it that way. I'm sure sure I can pull up a few more. That's a great share because I think, again, it's teaching people a lot about the difference of building an AI product versus just a normal SaaS product. I love why you talk about how it's not predictable. Because you're doing this research, research and development. This is a science base. And so how do you guys deal with that internally with that not being predictable? How do you guys deal with that? And like, because like you're spending this money, things are coming and you don't know if you're going to actually get to success because it's that science approach. You're like you're trying, you're failing, we're trying again. It's the try and fail. So how was dealing with that? Comes with experience, I think you find your own patterns and your own like these nuanced factors. You find patterns that you can begin to rely on and you start to get a sense. But it's a very different kind of a thing than just writing code. So you also have to account for the fact that there could be unpredictability. And so first of all, so very important is you start by figuring out, okay, how much unpredictability is it in this development? Like, because not all AI is equally unpredictable. Some areas, it's actually a little bit okay. Like, and then in other areas, it's, it's just a guess. And so you have to first start with that question. It's a question that you don't ask from software because all, you write Python, you write Python. But when you're doing machine learning, you have to first ask that question, like, how crazy is this thing? How much can we expect from it? And then from there, you have to bake that into your, your plans. And so, for example, if it's, very important for you to land a certain kind of value point or feature for a user and you're starting to look at the solution and it's like, okay, the way we're approaching this, it's like there's a high degree of unpredictability. 
you probably will opt for a different value point or you will opt for a different architecture. And so that becomes a factor in your decision-making that you carry forward. But what's unpredictable and how unpredictable certain areas of tech are in machine learning comes, I think, with experience in that area. Makes total sense. Thanks for sharing. I think there's a lot of learning here. So if you could go back in time and meet yourself, like when you're starting this company, what would you tell yourself? Buy a bunch of uh, N95 masks. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask questions, just buy N95. And toilet papers too. <laughs> and toilet papers, that's right. Buy <laughs> masks, toilet paper, and don't ask any questions. I actually have a good friend who, before all the, the hoopla around COVID started, went to like a Home Depot or something, just bought boxes of N95s because he's kind of a, like a very careful guy. And he sent us photos of these boxes and we were just making fun to the OM. And guess who was right? <laughs> Made us all feel stupid. Yeah. What kind of advice would I give from the past? I would say it's uh, kind of uh, ironic because it's the thing you hear from everyone. But after a while, you realize it's true. I would say the advice would be start getting potential customers and talking to them as early as possible. Put things in front of customers, like live with them for a little bit and get their feedback and figure out what their experience is. I think we waited a little bit too long to put our product in front of actual users because we're so confident in the value point that we didn't factor in the experience enough. And that was a problem ultimately. And I would say also that the value point. So uh, meaning that it should be clear what problem your product solves. And if it's not clear, you need to think about it a little bit more. I'll caveat that with the fact that there are some very strongly innovative products that, like, let's say before the iPhone came out, like, if you would ask someone about how would you use an iPhone, you would not get great answers. Our product falls a little bit into that category, because if you get someone like in a few years ago and you ask them like, hey, how would you use an AI meeting assistant? There is that important for you. People would be like, why? You know, I have no idea. So there are exceptions to every rule. But generally, you know, not something that's a brand new technology completely, but something that's even a little bit vetted, you need to understand what is the problem being solved and you need to get in front of the users and touch, use, like have the product touch the user and the user touch the product to make sure that they're getting the value from it and that they're excited to use it and they're ready to pay what you want for that product. That's a great lesson for your old self and for everybody that is trying to run a company. So how is the company doing today? What could you share about size and how big you guys are? And how does the future look like? Yeah, we have over 40,000 registered users today. We have our deepest customer pipeline today that includes the who's who of global companies. So we're very excited for this year. We've been leading the pack in developing features on top of the really powerful large language models that exist. So Semblian is an example of that, but there's a lot more goodies coming. So the way, for example, we can identify tasks is unique in all the world. There, as to my knowledge, there are no other products that can do what we can do there. Yeah, and so it's looking really excited. Part of the reason for this is because companies are coming around to understanding how powerful this technology is and how much value in terms of productivity it can provide to their teams. I mean, not just make the team's life easier and make their uh, work-life equation more balanced, but also actually get a lot more work done and get important work done. 
with the help of, of assembly. So those companies have now been reaching out to us versus us knocking on doors before this and saying, hey, there's this thing called AI meeting assistance. Let me tell you about it. Today, it's companies knocking on our door saying, hey, your product looks awesome. Can we try it? That's really exciting. Going forward into this year, we have some really, really mind-blowing AI-powered stuff planned. In fact, I would say right now, we're in a situation where we probably have more ideas than we can really execute on. And and one of our challenges is prioritizing what is going to be the most valuable thing for our customer base. But making heavy use of the very latest large language models to empower the kinds of features that weren't thought possible until just uh, a year ago. That's amazing. So thank you very much for coming in the show today. There's so much learning here. If people want to learn more about you, follow you, what's the best way? Yeah, you can find... So first of all, go to www.assembly.ai. That's S-E-M-B-L-Y.ai. And you can try the product. There's a free trial available. There's a personal plan. There's a professional plan for individuals. But then there's team and enterprise for teams and large organizations. So go ahead and do that. And you'll find how cool it is to have a meeting assistant that's that comes to your meetings. You'll never want to go back to a meeting without it. But you can also find me on LinkedIn as Artem Corin on LinkedIn or Clearly Corin is my handle on Twitter. You can get to me that way as well. Awesome. Thanks again for your time today. All right. Thank you. It was fun. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening, and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.